afternoon, everybody. How are y'all doing? Good. You look good. You sound good. My name is Sarah. I'm one of the pastors here at NCC. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're um, in the second week of this series, Things That Jesus Never Said. Um, and if you're brand new here, it's your very first week. Man, thank you so much for coming and worshiping with us, looking for a local church, looking for those next step in your faith, whatever brought you here. We're glad you're here. We believe you're not here by accident. But God had a purpose and a plan in bringing you here this morning, and he has something that he want to, wants to speak to you. Now, this series is, is kind of fun because you wouldn't believe, maybe you would, some of the things that people really think Jesus said, but he didn't say. I don't know if you've ever heard, like, cleanliness is next to godliness, how some people think that's in the Bible. FYI, not in the Bible. True, but not in the Bible. Uh, and there's a lot of things that we believe that Jesus said, but we actually find that he didn't. And so that's what we're digging into. Last week, Pastor Aaron kicked this off by sharing about how Jesus never said that following him would be easy. Um, and then this week, we're talking about how Jesus never said, I love you, so I'm okay with your sin. Yeah, we're talking about sin, so we're diving deep today. And before you run out the back doors acting like you're going to the bathroom and really leaving and coming back in a week when things are a little bit lighter, hang with me today, stay engaged, don't give up, because we're not going to talk about how you can feel more guilty about the mistakes you make. Not on the list today, okay? And we're not going to talk about picketing with signs that say God hates fill-in-the-blank group of people who he made in his own image. That's not what we're talking about today. Um, we're actually going to be talking a lot more about Jesus and a whole lot less about ourselves. So even though we are talking about this sin this morning, we're actually not going to be talking a lot about rules. But a lot of us, that's what we think of when we think of sin, right? Um, the way that I grew up, when we talked about sin, it was about a list of do's and don'ts. That was what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to go to church, was to behave a certain way. Uh, but that's actually not how Jesus designed us to live. But I grew up, I've shared with you before that my dad was a pastor. Um, and so I literally grew up almost in the church every single day. My house was actually attached to the church for the first nine years of my life. We played hide-and-seek in the basement when my parents weren't looking. But it was a whole lot of responsibility. We were at the church a lot. And uh, I was what you call a PK. So if you have a pastor's kid, a lot of people call them a PK. And um, in about fifth grade, someone told us about a PK retreat. So it was this retreat specifically for pastor's kids where they get together and can relax and just kind of get to know one another. And I was pumped. I was like, I don't think I've even ever met another pastor's kid. I'm going to find my people, and they're going to understand what my daily life looks like, what it's like to have a dad who's a pastor. And uh, so my, my older sister and I load up with this other pastor's wife. She was bringing her son and another girl that were all PKs down to this PK retreat. And I realized pretty quickly on the van ride that I do not belong in this group of people. <laughs> they listen to music that they all know. They're singing along. I don't know any of the stuff that they're singing. So they, they kind of look at me weird. And, um, and then they start teasing me about the way that I say things, I guess. I moved from Michigan not too long before that, so I guess I said some things weird. Um, but pretty quickly I figured out, like, I didn't belong with those people. But all hope is not lost, little Sarah, because we're almost to the retreat. And so we get to the retreat, and I end up being roomed with girls who are significantly younger than me, because my birthday was in December, I skipped kindergarten, so I was way younger than most of the people my grade. And so I end up getting roomed with these 
younger girls. And I'm fine. I'm fine with it. Um, but we have this counselor, who I'll never forget, older lady, missionary to Indonesia, didn't like me. She just didn't like me. Uh, and she thought I was too mature for the other girls because I talked about shaving my legs, so I guess that was a big deal. Um, and the, as the night wore on, it was really evident that she thought she needed to protect the other girls from me. And she pulled me aside and was like, listen, you just need to keep your mouth shut. You don't need to be talking to these other girls. And I wasn't like talking about you know, cussing or smoking or listening to other music, but she just felt like I didn't belong. And I went home, and it was like the worst feeling as a kid because I don't know if this has happened to you, but I went really expecting to find people who understood me, who people who would understand the issues that I faced, the struggles I faced, that would be there with me. And I ended up actually feeling like the opposite. I was on the outside of this really big club that I couldn't belong to. And it's sad to say, but a lot of people have that same experience with church. They come thinking, I'm going to find people who understand me. I'm going to find people who are loving and caring. And, and even though I have an addiction or I struggle with this issue, they're going to be compassionate with me. They're going to understand where I'm coming from. And unfortunately, a lot of people grew up feeling like church was the place you don't go when you don't have everything together, right? Anybody else have that experience? Yeah. But that's not how we're supposed to live. Following Jesus was never about rules. It was never about just following a list of do's and don'ts and looking like you belong on the outside, wearing the right clothes and saying the right words and lifting your hands at exactly the right minute. That's never what following Jesus was supposed to be about. And so today, as we talk about what sin looks like, we want to go into it from Jesus' perspective, not from our historical perspective. And we're going to see pretty quickly what Jesus has to say. So let's dig into the Bible. Um, you can grab a Bible. If you do not have one, please grab one from one of the seats or pull out your phone. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We believe Scripture shapes our lives. It is the ultimate authority over how we live. And so we want to be engaging with the Scriptures personally, regularly. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one, share one, pull out your phone, Matthew chapter 5, and hold that spot. So I want to give a little bit of background. Last week, Aaron shared from the beginning part of this chapter um, where Jesus is giving his Sermon on the Mount. Some of you probably heard that phrasing before. He's literally standing at the, I've been there, it's really cool, standing at the bottom of this natural amphitheater at the base of this mountain, and people are sitting up the mountain and listening to what he has to say. And he's doing these teachings that really throw people for a loop. It's really, really different than what they expected. And so we're going to start reading in verse 17, Jesus says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've, I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called Great in the kingdom of heaven, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now we're going to pause there because what Jesus starts doing is he starts going into this pattern where he's saying, 
Uh, you have heard it said, but I say, you have heard it said, but I say, right? He says it in verse 27, verse 31, verse 33, it goes on and on. Now, this was really, really significant to the people, the culture of the people that he was speaking to, because back then, a rabbi, a trusted teacher that you would follow, you'd follow their teachings, a rabbi would say, you have heard, but you must say, you have heard this, but you must say. It's how they taught their version of the law, their interpretation of the law. But what does Jesus do? He tweaks it. He says, you have heard, but I say. Now, this was significant because he's taking authority over the scriptures and over everyone else's interpretations of those scriptures. It's a really big deal. He's demonstrating that the law that they've come to know as the law is not necessarily what God ever intended it to be. And this is why, because the scribes and Pharisees Jesus is mentioning here, they're the religious leaders. And what they did is they took the law that was given in the Old Testament and they added to it. They said, well, when God says this, this is what he means. He says one thing, but it's really like 10 things here. And over here where he says this, you have to do it exactly this way. This is how you do it. And Jesus is pushing the reset button and saying, nope, that's not at all how that was supposed to go. He takes authority over their interpretations and he teaches something that would have been really odd to them. He teaches sin is a heart issue. Sin is a heart issue. Might not be a new teaching to you, but it was new to them because back then all of sin was considered physical. Sin was something you could see on the outside. It was action. And what Jesus said is, no, 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 no. Sin can't be separated from the heart and the body. It's inside. Sin is a heart issue. He's saying, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. In verse 27, he goes on, he says, You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I say that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus goes beyond the physical, the outside, to say, hey, the thoughts and feelings that create that action of sin, they might be unseen to people, but they are very visible to God. Sin is a heart issue. It's not just an issue with our bodies or with our actions. And this is a big deal because he's rejecting this legalistic issue, this legalistic view that rules and regulations that we follow externally is what makes us holy. It's what makes us worthy. Because here's the thing, legalism is based on the idea that if we follow the rules, okay, the Pharisees and the scribes, they believed, if I follow these rules, my righteousness is here. And if you follow that many rules, your righteousness is way down there. And Jesus is saying, oh no, no, you can't follow enough rules because your heart has sin in it. And no matter how many rules we follow, we cannot cleanse our heart from the issues that live within it because of our sin. Yeah? This is what Jesus is teaching. He takes it further and he teaches that the thoughts and the looks and the entertainment and the mind can be so dangerous and destructive to our soul that it's better to sacrifice something valuable than to lose our whole body and soul to sin. He teaches that avoiding sin requires a sacrifice. Avoiding sin requires sacrifice. So in verse 30, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, 
For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, theologians are saying, hold on, Jesus is not advocating for dismemberment. He's not telling you to go harm yourself. He's using exaggeration intentionally to show the severity of what sin does and how far we should go to avoid it. So he's saying, hey, the alternative is that you lose your entire body and your soul in hell forever and ever. He's challenging us to understand there's a separation that needs to happen when we want to avoid sin. So that separation of your hand, he's using it as a symbol that he later says your eye, pluck it out. It's a symbol of the things that tempt us and cause us to walk in sin. He's teaching us that there's no relationship, there's no activity, there's no place that we can go that is more precious and worth our souls. There's nothing. We have to separate ourselves. So maybe it's, I drink alcohol in excess, I don't know when to stop, and so now I separate myself. I can't go to that place anymore. I can't hang out with those friends anymore. I can't go to that restaurant that I love because it's just too tempting. It leads me places I don't want to go anymore. I separate myself from the thing that is tempting me to walk in sin. Maybe it's, this might hit a little bit closer to home, I have a habit at lunchtime at work. Me and my coworkers sit together and we catch up on the gossip. Who's doing what, who did, oh my gosh, did you hear about, that's not who I want to be anymore. I have to separate myself. I have to go somewhere else to lunch. I have to have different friends, different people. Do you see this separation? It's requiring a sacrifice. We might not hang out with some of our family members anymore. We might need a different circle of friends. We might have to give up our job because it's not worth our souls. This is what Jesus is trying to say. Sin's a heart issue, and it's going to require sacrifice for us to separate ourselves from that temptation to sin. He's teaching people rules are just not enough. They're never going to get us where we need to go. He's not giving them another law to follow, and it's important to, to, to make that distinction. He's not saying, okay, I told you before that it's a physical thing. Now it's also a heart thing that you need to work on. He's saying, no, what it all comes down to, people, is we need to submit our thought life, our heart life to God all the time. It's not another law. It's a whole other way of viewing everything, and he's showing us the bar is so much higher than we could ever reach. We need some help. We need some help. Jesus doesn't say he's okay with our sin. In fact, he extends it, right? He's saying it's no longer just an external thing. It's an internal thing. It's a heart issue, and it requires sacrifice. Well, then, if sin isn't about rules, how do we know if we're sinning? If it's not about do's and don'ts, if I don't have a new law to follow, how do I know if I'm sinning? I'm so glad you asked because it's a lot simpler than you probably think. We go to the scriptures to the very beginning and we see really clearly sin is rebellion against God. That's it. Sin is rebellion against God. It's God saying, here's the plan and you saying, no, I'm going to do it my own way. I got this. Got it all together. If you look through the Bible, you can see sin on pretty much every single page. It's a very common discussion. The one place that you don't see it is at the very beginning, right? In Genesis chapter 1, when God's making and creating this beautiful earth, he creates Adam and Eve. He, create, he makes a covenant with them, a two-way promise with them, that he's going to be near them, he's going to lead them, he's going to guide them. They're going to have unlimited access to him, and he gives them authority, 
the keys to the kingdom, authority over everything that they see. They have authority over the world to rule it, to do what they see fit with it. They only have one rule, you guys. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I grew up a lot of time thinking, well, this would be a whole lot simpler if I didn't have so many rules. Not true. If we had one rule, we'd break it. We know we would because they do. They had one rule and they broke the rule and it wasn't about the tree. It wasn't about the tree. It was about the rebellion. We see really quickly, just from Genesis 1 to 3, we hear, did God really say? And that first rebellion is born and sin enters the world immediately. It's about this pattern we have of taking authority over God of somehow thinking we know better than he does. <laughs> and boy, can we make a mess of things. But we're not the only ones. Again, go back to scripture, and you see sin woven through all of these stories, right? We see Cain killing Abel. We see Abraham lying about his wife and then sleeping with his servant. We see David committing adultery with his friend's wife and then having his friend murdered. What? We see Peter denying Jesus to save his own skin. Paul stands in approval watching Christians brutally murdered. These are the good guys in the Bible. <laughs> They're jacked up. Sin is all throughout the scriptures, right? It's woven into every story. We see it over and over again. It's called by lots of different names. It's idolatry, it's transgression, it's iniquity, it's failure. But regardless of how it shows itself in our behavior, it always comes back to being about rebellion against God. I rebel against God. I think I have it together. Because when we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, we cannot love our neighbor as ourself. Those two commandments Jesus boiled everything down to, if we do not love him, if we do not commit to him, if we do not trust him, everything else, it just falls behind. When it all comes down to it, it's all about us rebelling against the one person who has our best at mind. So why then, we see that it's bad, is it so dangerous? Why, when Jesus talks about it, is it like this very dangerous principle? Why is God so strong standing against sin? Why does he war against it? Why does the Bible warn us so much about it? Because sin invites evil into our world. Sin is rebellion against God, and when we sin, we invite evil into our world. We see this right away in Scripture, right? As soon as Adam and Eve blow it, there's shame. They're separated. They cover themselves up. They're separated from God. They're separated from each other. They're kicked out of the garden because God has to protect the garden from the evil they just welcomed into this fresh world that he just created. Only a couple chapters later in Genesis chapter 4, we have the first murder. Genesis chapter 5 is full of he died, he died, he died, he died, he died. We see sin quickly leads to death. And just Genesis 6 through 9, the flood where sin is so bad, God has to hit the reset button on the entire population. That's what sin brings into our world. It reminds me a lot of one of our family's favorite books, which is the Chronicles of Narnia. Any Chronicles of Narnia fan? Not the movie. Not the, oh, I saw the hand go down. Not the movie. It's not true to form. Literature teacher. It's the book, the book. But for real, it's one of our favorite books in our house. C.S. Lewis is an incredible author, incredible theologian, and he teaches such really powerful truths through a really understandable method. So if you haven't read it with your kids, highly recommend. Great read aloud book. But 
Chronicles of Narnia, the, the character that symbolizes God is a lion named Aslan, okay? And Aslan has just created this fresh new world of Narnia. Everything's new and fresh. And these two children have found their way into Narnia. And they're watching Aslan sing over the land and all of these creatures coming up out of it. And it's this beautiful picture. But earlier in the day... The two kids had been in another magical land where they were tempted to release this evil queen just to see what would happen. And she follows them into Narnia. And Aslan is standing in front of all of his creation with these kids there. And this is what he says. He says, you see, friends, that before the new clean world I gave you is seven hours old, a force of evil has already entered it, waked and brought here by this son of Adam. But don't be cast down. Evil will come of that evil, and I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. Mm. So often, we think about sin as being like a legal infraction, like we get a ticket. We break a rule, we break a law, we apologize, we get punished, and then everything's okay, right? Everything's back to normal. That's not how sin operates. It's so much worse than that. It's a tragedy. One theologian says, sin is a symptom of idolatry. When we turn from worshiping the true God, we surrender the authority God has given us to the idols, the powers and principalities of darkness. When we sin, we take that authority God gave us as his created beings made in his image, and we give it to evil when we sin. See, sometimes I think we think that we hold on to it ourselves. Like, oh, now I'm the one in charge. So not the case. So not the case. In fact, Romans 6.16 says it really clearly. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. There is no middle ground. Either we're in sin or we're obeying God. Those are our only options. And when we choose sin, we are surrendering authority and releasing evil to have power in our world, in our families, in our lives. Then we stand back and we go, God, how could you let this happen? How could you let all those people suffer? How could you let bad things happen to good people? We threw our authority out the window. We chose another way, our own way. We chose to rebel. This is ours, ours to own, our responsibility. We were the ones given the authority and the responsibility to take care of our world. And we drop the ball a lot. We do. Sin in the Bible represents everything that's wrong in the universe. And guys, Jesus, God, they're not okay with it. They're not okay with sin. But what about grace, you may ask? I thought God was a God of grace and mercy, so doesn't his love just cover over everything? Well, let's look at the scriptures. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I won't be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both and the other. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, if you skip down to verse 19. Or do you not know that your body, my body, your body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought 
with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Bible shows us over and over again we're made in this image of God. We carry his authority with us, and then we're separated from him by sin. It's this beautiful tension God lives in. As I was studying this, I kept seeing that duality of God is driven by this unending love for us, and yet his wrath against sin cannot be turned aside. There's both. God is holy and righteous, and we are unrighteous, and God lives in this tension of both sides of the spectrum. We've chosen to live in rebellion, so we deserve his wrath, but somehow he keeps bringing us near to himself. And you might hear wrath, and you might feel like me. I was doing this research, and I came to this word, and, and like all things, I went to the dictionary. Um, wrath usually, to me, meant something violent or evil, and I thought, well, God can't be violent or evil, so what does wrath actually mean? Webster's defines it as an intense emotional state of displeasure with someone or something. In a state of intense emotional displeasure. Pleasure, But God's wrath, this action of pushback against sin, it's not a part of who he is like his love. God is love. That's a part of who he is. His wrath is this outworking of his holiness. This is the only way I could think to describe it, is this water represents God, pure, holy, right? Separate, different, distinct. And when we take sin and we combine it, what happens? It's participatory, you can, you can say, I'm a teacher. What happens? It separates. The water literally pushes the oil away. Now, because I'm a nerd, I wanted to know why, so I researched, and I found this little gem. See, chemicals that don't mix are said to be immiscible. There you go, you learned something new today. And it's because on a molecular level, Water is polar, oil is nonpolar. They literally cannot combine. Their natures are too different. Think about that when you think about how God's nature responds to sin. It's not like it's even an active thing. It automatically propels it because his nature cannot take in sin. It can't. He's too holy, he's too good, he's too pure. It naturally expels it away from him. They can't connect. See, if God didn't condemn sin, if he didn't condemn sin, he wouldn't be a nicer God. He wouldn't be God at all. An unholy God is not God anymore. It's us. If God set aside the expectations and lowered the bar, he would not be him anymore. He cannot change his nature. He is faithful and consistent. He'd be irrelevant. So what can we do? <laughs> if you don't see, I have painted a very dreadful picture. We are human, sin is of our hearts, we cannot expel it on our own. We are doomed to keep repeating the same mistakes that we make over and over. We cannot solve our own problems. What do we do? Well, it always brings us back to Jesus. Every time. No matter how many times you read the scriptures, what does it all drive towards? The Savior, the solution. Because Jesus is the only solution to our sin problem. The only solution to our sin 
problem. And this is so important for us to understand because if we don't think clearly, if we don't understand sin, we cannot understand our Savior. Okay, if I don't understand how dreadful, how ugly, how nasty, how harmful, how evil my sin is, I cannot comprehend how far Jesus went to save me from it, how much he took on himself. If I think I did a little bit of bad, I think he saved me from a little bit of bad. But if I know how jacked up I am, I know exactly how far he brought me. Sometimes you guys will see me up here leading worship, and I can't help it because I cry or I laugh. You know why? Because I remember where I used to be. Man, sometimes I have to look at my life and just laugh or cry because I think, God, you've brought me so far. I did this much. You did it all. Jesus, he doesn't lower the bar. He stays holy. So I want to share this mental picture. This is Again, the only way, I think practically, so this is the only way I could think to describe this. So I need, I need specific volunteers. Yeah, Jaren, come up here. Blake, will you come up here for me? Okay, and I need one other person. Come on up here, bud. All right, give them a hand. Yay, volunteers. All right, so Jaren, you're going to be Jaren. So you're going to stand right over here. Okay, yep, right there. Let's move this. Okay, and Blake, you're going to be Jesus. Uh-huh, good for you, yeah. All right, so you're here together, you're good. And guess who you get to be? You're God, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right here in the middle, all right? So here we are, we're all together, everything's fine and dandy and great, right? But then what does sin do? Sin separates us, okay? So you guys go over here, you guys go over here. Yep, you're repelled away from sin, remember? Yep, so here sin separates us. Now, what do we do? God doesn't lower the bar, but you can't cross over there because you got sin in between you. So how do you handle this gap? You can't move. God can't move the bar. Jesus, he crosses over. He becomes human. He puts Jaron on his back. You got it? Hop up there. (laughs) That was a bad jump. There you go. And he carries him across. Thank you guys very much. Give him a hand. We can't cross it on our own, and God doesn't move the bar to meet us. He sends someone to get us. It's so awesome. So awesome. See, Jesus knew we needed a Savior. Our solution has to match our problem, right? You don't put a Band-Aid on a broken bone. We get that. Hopefully, if some shingles blew off your roof in that last storm, you didn't use Elmer's glue to go put them back on. If so, call someone. Um, We have to have a solution that matches our problem. And Jesus knew that we needed a Savior. He knew we needed someone to, to carry and to cleanse us of our sins, and he does that. But you guys, he does so much more than that. Because that's only part of the picture. The Bible tells us that when Jesus was sleeping when he was dead in that tomb his body was resting in the tomb his soul took a journey it says his soul went to the enemy camp he went to hell he took back all the authority that we'd given to him and he came back and he woke up three days later and he said we're starting a revolution i'm giving your authority back go one person at a time you start bringing this all around the world and establishing my kingdom right here where it all began. 
That's the power of what Jesus did. He's giving you authority to carry his salvation, his freedom, all the good things that exist in him, every single place that you go. He's giving you the authority to put people on your back and carry them across that void. And listen, some of us are so busy enjoying the freedom we have over here, we forgot there's anybody else that has to make the trip. You have authority to go into your job, to go into your family, to go to your neighbors, and to share the good news with them that they don't have to be perfect, that this is not about legalism, it's not about following rules. Jesus never said, I'm okay with your sin. He said, here's the standard. Listen, I know you can't do it. Hop on my back. We got this together. I'm going to take you. I'm going to carry you. And here's, here's the thing. Jesus never said he's okay with our sin, right? He said sin is a heart issue. He said, listen, it's going to require sacrifice. You're going to have to separate yourself Jesus, it says in the Bible, is a good high priest. He understands. He was human. He knows what it's like to be tempted. So when he says you have to separate yourself, he understands what that costs. He does. He gets it. He reminds us, though, that when we sin, we're inviting evil into our world, into our families, into our jobs, into our homes. And Jesus is the only solution to that sin problem. And here's the thing. He, he knows you're going to mess up. Okay, some of us grew up in a church where it was always about losing our salvation. We come up and say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, and we go out and make a mistake and think we had to come back up to the altar next week because we're always so afraid. But following Jesus, it's not about religion. It's not about following rules. It's about relationship. And listen, when you're married and you blow it with the other person, do you leave? I hope not. You figure it out, right? You come back and you say, look, I blew it. I own my mistake. I'm sorry. I apologize. And then you turn away and you do different. That's what we do with Jesus when we make a mistake. You're going to blow it. You're going to sin. The beauty is that we don't have to live in fear anymore. We don't have to live by a bunch of rules and regulations. It's not about perfection. In fact, we started this in chapter 5 of Matthew, and if you skip down to verse 48, it says, Be therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the word perfect there actually means full development, growth into maturity of godliness. That's God's definition of perfect for you. You never quit pursuing Him. Not you perform not you check all of the rules, not you come to church and you look the part and you sing the right songs and you raise your hands at the right time. You never stop pursuing him. The only way the enemy wins in your life is if you quit, if you quit. And I so wish somebody would have told me this when I was younger because I didn't hear it till I was in my 20s. But I want you to hear it. God would rather you come broken than not come at all. He would rather you come addicted in the middle of a messy divorce, a disaster, depressed, whatever it is, fill in the blanks. He'd rather you come like that than never come to him at all. He doesn't want you perfect. He wants you pursuing him. He doesn't want your performance. He wants your heart. He wants you to keep loving him and keep chasing him. 
And that's the kind of church that we want to be. We don't want to be the kind of church where people walk in here and feel like they have to perform a certain way or look a certain way, where people feel like they have to hide their issues. That's not who we are. We want to be the church that says, you're addicted, I've been there. I can walk through this with you. Stay with me. That's the kind of church we want to be. And it's going to take every single one of us committing to this, saying, hey, Jesus isn't okay with our sin, but he is the solution for our sin. And listen, he gave me authority and I'm gonna walk with you because we're gonna take care of this together. I'm gonna carry you on my back just like he carried me. So let's pray together. If you'll bow your head, close your eyes. This message has been really heavy for me because I, um, again, I grew up in a very legalistic environment and I don't want anyone in this room to feel like they're being condemned for their mistakes. It's not how Jesus works. He recognizes our sin and he comes and he sits with us in it and he pulls us out. So if you're here today and you have never acknowledged your sin, you've never come to Jesus and said, look, I know I'm rebelling against you. You are not the leader of my life. I'm the leader of my life. And I want that to change. I do. I know it's going to take a lot, but I want that to change today. I want to pray for you. If you're here in this room today and you're like, hey, I honestly have been following a list of rules and regulations. I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing. I've been looking the part, but my heart has not been in it. And I don't want to live like that anymore. I want to pray for you. And for everybody else in this room, I want to pray that we are the church that Jesus designed us to be, that we love, that we're open, that we don't budge on sin. We don't lower the level, but we love and we carry We serve. So if you would, in your own words, please pray with me right now. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace and your truth. Thank you for walking in that tension, for being who you are, loving us endlessly and saving us. God, I pray right now for the people in this room who are living on their own terms. They're not trusting you. And God, they're missing out on the life you've designed for them, that you've dreamed for them since before they were born. You have been dreaming of them. You've been loving them. You've been planning. You've been gifting them. God, I pray today that as a a switch is flipped and they turn and they say, God, I trust you. I know it's gonna be a battle, but I'm gonna follow you. When I blow it, I'm going to acknowledge it. I'm going to own it. I'm going to say, I'm sorry. I'm going to turn and walk the other direction. I'm going to separate myself from my sin because I just don't want to keep living that way anymore. God, I pray for people in here who've been following rules. God, I pray today that something new starts in their life, a beautiful relationship with you where their days are not driven by a checkbox, but they're driven by a connection to you, a relationship with you. And God, I pray for us as New Community Church, Lord, that we would be the kind of place where we're known to speak truth in love, where we come alongside of people who are struggling and we welcome them in with open arms, where we don't expect people to perform a certain way or look a certain way or act a certain way but where we welcome everyone and we show people your love and your grace and your truth. Make us into that church, Jesus. Challenge us today, I pray. Let your word change us from the inside out. 
In Jesus' name, amen.